Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is the moment you don't like, but unfortunately I am stuck doing it. If you're listening, if you get something out, please give something back. The Tortoise Shack relies on listeners. We have no ads, we have no sponsors. We need you to help us keep the mics on and the conversations going. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, and the link is in this shrapnel podcast that you're listening to right now. Uh, I know it's a pain in the arse, but unfortunately, if we don't ask, we just go away because we rely completely on you. And it's not a one-way street. If you chip in, if you're in there, if you're giving us the fiver a month or whatever it is, there's a lot of additional content, including the most recent shrapnel where Sam McElwain came down to Ballymun in the Axis Theatre to answer, to sit with a live audience and answer questions on loyalism, unionism, Northern Ireland, protocols, politics and socioeconomic issues. A really, really great listen. You get all the podcasts in one place, whether it's Shrapnel or Echo Chamber or Reboot Republic or the new Musclet one who's just coming out now this week. The first episode of that is live or on the Patreon feed right now. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. The link is right there on the screen that you have in your hand right now. Have a look, see if you can help us out. I won't delay any further. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support and enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. Tonight we're joined by A.S. Hagen. A.S. is a former RUC officer who is active on Twitter as Red Brick Slums. He describes himself as a writer of fiction about Irish terrorism and the lives it damages. He tweets about his experiences of living with complex post-traumatic stress disorder and he hosts the Stray Bullets Podcast. So Ed, welcome to uh, Shrapnel. Um, it's really, really good to see you after um, corresponding on Twitter for so long. Yeah, thanks very much. It's good to be here. Good to speak to you. It's good to finally meet you too, Ed. Um, Are you too, Sam? Well, I'll, I'll maybe kick off with the, with the first one, just just to break in gently. Um, as a fellow podcast host, we'll be we'll be nice with you tonight. We'll not we'll not go too deep. Okay. Um, is can you give a brief over? view of, of your of your service just to give us an idea of what area you sort of cover yeah um, I honestly joined well I joined and at the start of 1986 um, and at that period then I was in North Belfast initially and then I went to West Belfast um, I spent just about 18 months um, in Belfast at that time then I went down to Newry and South Armagh uh, until about mid to late 1990. Then I came back up to the city um, and I was in West Belfast again. And basically I spent most of my time from coming back up mid-90s in West Belfast um, through the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and on into the 2000s. Um, and then I spent a brief period again in North Belfast um, uh, before ultimately um, finishing my career actually in, in Gitnards. And I think from the, the year you're talking about there when you, when you joined up, that was the year where they, what was it, they joined the RUC and come home to a real fire. Uh, stuff was getting rolled out across the walls in Belfast. Because a lot of people outside of outside of Northern Ireland would assume that the RUC and and the loyalist community lived hand in glove, um, and it's important that people know that you guys didn't belong to either community. Um, taking aside all the other stuff that goes on about collusion and stuff, but on a daily basis, you were, you were in the middle. You were really in the middle of this. Yeah, very much so. I think even when I joined, um, or even prior to my joining, um, I didn't have a really big understanding of. Um, say the troubles um, and the whole dynamics of the community. Um, it's probably because before joining, um, I was set on a path that I wanted to be um, um, to do uh, ocean, not oceanography, but uh, along those lines anyway. Um, and also, I was into you know musical tastes, um, a writing taste. It didn't really. Um, Push me towards, say, policing as such. 
Um, it was only towards the end of 1985 there was a slim sort of interest in it, and then I had the, there was a family, personal family events, and um, an awful lot of upheaval. Um, and before I knew it, uh, I was actually speaking to a guy from recruitment from the RUC. Um, and then next thing I was enrolling uh, in the RUC and found myself in training in 1986. So I would say, especially that initial period um, and those early years, were a real baptism of fire um, for me. You know, one of the earliest memories I have, I can remember being in the back of uh, a Land Rover and we heard like rattling, like stones going off the side of the Land Rover. But I think at that time it was the UVF had fired a couple of uh, rounds at the Land Rover. Oh, I can't remember. It might have been the Balligan Martin sometime, somewhere around about that. But um, I think just seeing that and even feeling the tension on the ground and sort of call, and trying to, you know, learn learn the policing, as it were, and also learn about the... Uh, the aspects of the community at the time uh, and those tensions um, as well sort of it, it certainly opened my eyes and it was a you know a very sharp education for me uh, just in terms of um, the perception of the RUC uh, within the community I, I guess you know because why one community sort of perceives um, or you see as not working with them, but say working against their enemies for, um, you know, said that way, that they sort of um, would not align themselves with us, but would sort of see us on more friendly terms. And then when that um, coin was spun um, and things appeared to go the other way, then, you know, <clears throat> It's a, as I've said before, you know, it's the same petrol bombs, the same blast bombs, um, rubble and debris coming at your shield. Um, and sometimes, it, you know, it doesn't matter who's thrown it. A lot of times, it, well, there was no difference, really. Um, you know, even if you sort of drill down to who was wearing, like, either GAA tops or, you know, the football tops or, or whatever, it didn't really come into it. It was just a, a question of if you were... Um, say crashed out because there was a ride ongoing um, and somewhere you, you just sort of in your head you sort of just went through your procedures um, and your sort of readiness and then you just responded to that riot um, and there wasn't really a question of who was causing it or you know who was on what side it was just really a you know a reactionary response on our part and there was times when you were the the buffer zone, either to keep you know one warring faction away from um, a residential community who had opposing views, um, and vice versa, you know. And sometimes you would come under fire from um, front, and sometimes you come under fire from both sides. So you know it was a, it was a constantly shifting dynamic um, with us. But yeah, there was that um, sort of buffer feeling, and you know that in the middle. And what was the training like that you received before you actually were deployed onto the streets? Was it did it prepare you for the situations you find yourself in? Yeah, it did in a manner of speaking. But I think I was still, you know, it was just for me. It was just um, police, and the, uh, there was a lot of stuff about dealing with you know road traffic accidents, about forms, um, the right procedures for you know um, dealing with drunk drivers, criminal damages. Um, trying to get theft uh, into your head and all the different, you know, aspects of fraud. Um, yeah, for, and I guess, you know, the thing with the Land Rovers and even the, um, you know, the rat training and stuff, it was kind of, at that stage, maybe because I was so young, it seemed kind of unreal, as it were, I guess because partly as well, probably because I didn't grow up amongst, um, say, the working communities in North and West Belfast who are at the, you know, the sharp end of everything. Um, so maybe that was an aspect that played into it and maybe played into my naivety as well. Um, but yeah, it was more sort of, as I say, I was more focusing on remembering forms and uh, legislation and, um, 
you know, and the right legislation to use in certain circumstances rather than um, baton round guns and even the weapons themselves. Again, that was kind of, you know, would we really have to carry these sort of things? So there was an awful lot of naivety and it maybe went with a wee bit of immaturity as well, you know, for that aspect. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, Sam alluded to the the environment that you, you were thrust into and for people who don't yeah. really know, it was around the time of the Anglo-Irish Agreement and there was obviously, well, a lot of anger within in the Unionist, Loyalist, Protestant community and Perhaps recently, I've been reading about that era again, and and there are some parallels with the recent talk of joint authority, and people are getting frightened about about that idea, and it, the similar fears were there in the mid eighties. So, I think one of the really interesting things for me when when I when I look at your career, we talked to Brian Alloway, who who is a firefighter, and one of the first things he had to deal with after he passed out was Bloody Friday. Um, one of your first experiences, I believe, was being threatened by loyalists. Um, now yeah, you've talked about yeah. the gun attack, but can you talk yeah, a wee yeah. bit about that and, and how it, how it made you feel at that time? Yeah, I, that was my first day of training, and I remember I was only in the training centre about maybe five six hours, and I think it was we were starting to come up towards you know um, the end of the classes and stuff. Um, and then it was just a case of, um, I think somebody came round and they checked our addresses um, again. Um, and then they went away again. Um, and then I was brought into, I was called for and, and then taken into an office. And basically, uh, because of where I lived at the time, um, I was told that uh, there had been a threat come through, um, you know, believed, you know, at that time from the UVF. And it was just basically, I wouldn't be going home. Um, because it, my mother, you know, she lived on her own and she um, probably was expecting to hear from me or, or whatever or see me, you know, um, at the weekend. But it was a case of no, uh, you're not going home. We're looking into this threat. Um, and then I was housed and I had to live in a station um, after that. So <laughs> that sort of separately from even the whole um, issue of the, you know, policing and training um kind of knocked me for sex because it was it was um because it was so personal uh and because it was so sort of jarring uh compared to what i'd previously uh sort of been used to um it was it was quite hard to deal with i know it was quite hard for my mother to deal with as well and then sort of worried about repercussions and you know everything's going through their head with the house be petrol bombed and um, I know there was fire extinguishers in the, the hallway and stuff, but I still wasn't um, permitted to go home. Um, so, uh, yeah, that that probably put me on my way uh, in an aspect of even at that time maybe seeing, you know, loyalists um, as, as non-aligned to, well, especially myself, and especially, say, you know, myself being a member of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, um, so it was kind of shocking. And then what I did um, go through training um, and eventually on the ground and ironically, you know, I was sort of and then sent to Tennant Street, uh, you know, and then after being shot at uh, by UVF, uh, you know, you could pick up on all these sort of tensions. And as you rightly point out about, you know, the Anglo-Irish agreement at the time um, and just how much pressure uh, policing was coming on under and then funnily enough just when I'm sort of getting used to um, working in that atmosphere then I was moved to West Belfast and I found myself um, Springfield Road, Grosvenor Road which was a, a, like the, again the flip side of the coin but it still it, it still retained some similarities Yeah because I was reading again looking at that Anglo-Irish agreement um, period and thinking about the personalities you had at that time on, on your patch. Um, and one of the interviews I was reading was in the Sunday Tribune, and it was an interview with George Seawright. And it's a fascinating interview that I'd never actually seen before, but George Seawright is bringing this um, Irish journalist around um, the Shankill and Ballysillan on the 11th of July. And 
the pick up uh, UVF leader at the time, but months later it transpires it was John Bingham, who was the UVF commander in North Belfast at that time. And one of the things that John Bingham says in that interview, which I find very interesting, was he says things have changed. You know, things have completely changed for for loyalists. Um, it used to be that when you were stopped at a uh, RUC checkpoint or by the army, if they saw the red hand tattoo on your arm, they would chat to you and let you, let you go through. Whereas now they're giving us a hard time. Um, my feeling, and you can talk about this from your experience, but my feeling yeah. is that that's a very simplistic notion of, of, you know, as you say, you don't go in with any fear or favor of, of you're serving the community. Yeah. You're not serving one side of the community. So what what was it like when you did encounter those perceptions that, you know, why are you not on our side and why are you not working in our best interests? Yeah. The, I mean, the, the, there's one mo- uh, moment I can remember clearly. It's kind of for me, and it was way back at the start of my career, sort of highlighted it for me and it was a, a vehicle checkpoint and it was on the shankle um and i remember stopping i can't even remember who it was but i stopped him anyway um and it was just a case i think several motorists in fact you know they were saying um what are you stopping us they seemed quite disgruntled because they were being stopped and it was just a case of why are you stopping us the terrorists are on the other side i rode you know gesturing towards the, the springfield road um yeah, uh, there was a perception that, you know, they shouldn't have been stopped. Even if you're stopping somebody for, say, checking, you could have been stopping for checking for seatbelt, you know, if there weren't seatbelts or tax. Or, I know it sounds kind of simplistic, you know, given what was going on at the time. But, I mean, those things did happen because you needed some um, jurisdiction to stop a vehicle traveling on a road. Um, and if, you know, say the, the next car... Um, was full of personalities and obviously then um it might be dealt with differently um but there was there, there was as i say you know i did get that perception you know why are you stopping us um on the shankle side um uh, sort of during the time there was you know say a lot of uh, para attacks but at the same time sometimes when you were on the falls or the springfield road and if there was um some atrocity carried out by loyalists or whatever. Uh, it was a case of, you know, oh, I, yeah, you're always stopping over here. You wouldn't go over to your friends over in the shankle. Um, you wouldn't be over bothering them. You know, so you had that sort of, you know, um, opposite perspectives that um, one side thought we shouldn't be bothering them. You know, say loyalists thought we shouldn't be bothering them. We, our job was kind of, go, was counter-terrorism and it was counter, you know, Irish terrorism and that was it. And then the perception, say, on the full Springfield Road, um, even down South Armagh sometimes, was that, you know, um, we wouldn't bother with loyalists, stroke unionists, you know, we were sort of all tarred with the same brush. Uh, so, it, it, yeah, it, it did get get a bit sort of uh, weary after a while. Um, and I think it, it just got so much that you were getting these types of... Um, comments that after a while you just sort of unconsciously didn't hear them as it were you know uh because you you kind of stop a car uh you go around and perceive like new tires and just what you know a vehicle stop would be you know say um as opposed to say a vehicle stop where you're looking for a specific vehicle um that may have been involved in crime but you did even stopping persons, um, you know, for uh, person checks with pedestrians and stuff. You still you, you would get those same comments as well, and then that brought to light uh, to me just that perception. Um, and I'd never been political, and I still I still am not political because I've no interest in it. Um, and the same with religion. So for me, it sort of turned into um, just wanting to know the kind of ideologies behind that and how that's what's then my interest. Um, and that especially with, um, you know, Irish Republicans and militant Irish Republicans, uh, just to find out more about their ideologies, specifically because they were, you know, more their targeting was more intensive myself and my colleagues. Um, but at the same time, just to see I was also interested and still am interested in 
the aspects of loyalism, where loyalism lies in the context of um, Ulster, um, the United Ireland uh, sort of concept, and how Westminster sort of behaved in you know recently in terms of loyalism, you know, kind of I suppose it goes into identity politics where loyalism has sort of been caught adrift, uh, as it were, you know, and it's kind of trying to find steerage and trying to find anchorage and some kind of, um, a, you know, cultural identity that it can be sure of, uh, whereas maybe Irish Republicans would be more um, sort of comfortable because they're coming from a background of, you know, opposing a colonial power, uh, a brutal, say, uh, colonial power. They're taking back their language, their lands. Um, they've sort of um, adopted and uh, uh, become aligned to the, you know, even things like place names, uh, you know, so taking back place names. And also they're sort of more... Um, sort of sure-footed, as it were. So, yeah, those I, those aspects have sort of always been of an interest to me. I'm not sure if that sort of, if that answers the kind of query, but oh, that's sort of absolutely. what put me on it. Yeah, yeah I, I was going to sort of take a step back. You were talking about during your basic training and you were talking about vehicle checks. I mean, day-to-day you were still a police officer and day-to-day you still had to deal with the petty crime and the and the mundane sometimes. Um yeah, yeah. It, it's quite amazing how you go from being part of a, a patrol being under fire for a monomonic gunfire and then the next thing you're turning up to a, an old lady who's having her door knocked and kids are running away and just phoning the police or antisocial behaviour. The job that the RUC did here, um, I know there's a book of force apart, it, it is really not replicated in too many places around Europe um, and it certainly was one of those niche jobs I don't, I don't see how you guys did it. To be honest, I really don't. You're you're trying to wear many hats as such, and I don't know. I don't know how you did it. I know an ex police officer who turned to to alcohol to cope with it, and that seemed to be the coping mechanism of a lot of RUC officers at the time. Um, and again, we've yeah. talked we've talked to Brian Holloway, and the fire service was the same. So, how can you function as a normal police officer whilst trying to self medicate? From all the other stuff that's going on, how how do you cope with that? I think um, even to take your first sort of example of going from one incident to a sort of more mundane incident, there did sort of for me anyway. It was sort of like you know um, switching your mindset. Um, although, say you were um, going up uh, calling into a street where there'd been a burglary or some kind of, say, concern for safety, or even a criminal damage to a house. Um, while you were doing that, you might not have been conscious um, of, you know, still having the security, um, sort of, or using the security principles, um, kind of being um, cautious about the area, the time of day, person's about, person's not about, windows in the houses opened or closed. Um, the approach and stuff that sort of became like um, like muscle memory, as it were. Uh, but at the same time, you were leafing through your folder, and you were looking for your statements, uh, your witness uh, blank witness statements, and any other forms you needed. Um, you were also uh, radio and control and say letting them know where you were, your time of arrival, and updating them. Um, but you were also um, uh, mindful that you didn't want to keep, didn't want to be there. Depend on the area, you, you wouldn't want to keep, say, play, uh, the the arm your army support there too long, and your other crew members there too long. Plus, if there was any multiples or bricks, you, um, army patrols that were crashed out, or diverted to provide satellite cover, you wouldn't want to keep them on the ground too long as well. Um, but it was kind of, as I say, it was just sort of like. Um, um, switching your your thought process um, in terms of uh, sort of medicating I know personally after a number of incidents and I, um, either personally caught up in or being first on the scene and then subsequently leaving um, and then even the next day there was a, nobody 
there was a, like an un, unspoken uh, rule that basically nobody spoke about the incident. You talked about everything else around that was going on um, on a day-to-day basis, but the incident itself became taboo, um, and especially if a colleague had been killed or seriously injured. Um, if seriously injured, you might have spoke a, a bit just about that colleague, um, but especially in terms of those fatalities, um, you know, when you were personally at the scene, um, then the, there was no talk at all about it. And I mean, I know, I know colleagues, you know, from the get-go, um, you know, who kept um, bottles in the locker. Uh, some of them, at that, even at that time, I, I realise now looking back, you know, they were functioning alcoholics um, and they had to have um, this sort of cushion to kind of um, say, you know, cope with um, what was going on, what might be going on. Uh, because at the same time, even on quiet days, you still had um, this apprehension or expectancy of either, you know, like a an RPG warhead turned through the side of a truck or as soon as you got out, maybe uh, being capped or something by a sniper. Uh, although maybe at the back of your mind, you, you knew uh, based on um, intelligence um things like that, that it may not happen. But that sort of apprehension kind of grew and developed in your mind. Um, and it was something you just you could never shake. And I suppose it was a, it's a survival instinct to a degree. Um, but even as I say, even when you were traveling from uh, one call to another, or even going for a breakfast in the trucks, you were also, sometimes you were just um, anticipating you know, the Land Rover being hit or being hit when uh, would have to debus or something. Um, and even in down around uh, Newry, Cross McLean and all, I remember a guy who used to sit put whiskey in his cornflakes um, and basically no milk, you know, it was just an ongoing um, sort of thing. And it was kind of reinforced by, you know, um, if we are, or if we were an incident or if we were, maybe hit ourselves or whatever, uh, and everybody was okay, then you'd be brought up later on when the sort of dust had settled. You might have been brought up to one of the boss's office, offices and, uh, you know, like a cliche filing cabinet would have been opened and there would have been, you know, a bottle of something, the glasses would have been passed around. And even to go back to down around Newry, I remember uh, um, on a night shift, one of the cars, I can't remember if it was a drogue bomb or a blast bomb, possibly a drogue bomb, was thrown at one of the uh, base plate patrol, patrol cars and that exploded in the bonnet. The two guys were uh, obviously shaken up or sh- shook up, um, but that morning uh, they were both uh, kind of given a rum toddy or whatever and just sent on their way home. So yeah, it was a big aspect. I think it sort of um, permeated all sort of levels of the job. Yeah, and you're saying about go on home. Even then, you didn't switch off. I mean, your personal security no. going to and from working at home, you were still under that oppressive sort of cosh the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, certainly because I, even going back to the para threat, um, it was a case of um, I, I just got married at the time um, and we were met coming off the plane uh, and basically uh, you can't go home and again uh, there'd been uh, unbeknown to us there'd been police up around our house you know checking it out looking at the garden and stuff and the area around it and the street and everything um, and that came that stemmed from a para attack or a para threat uh, so it did so yeah it was it was massive you know you you know, you can't say looking for, you know, strangers, um, any anything at all. You know, phantoms, just your imagination just went uh, crazy sometimes. And you had a whole uh, mindset when you were traveling to work, when you were coming from work, and even just day to day, you know, if you were off, there was still certain places you couldn't go, you couldn't be seen, um, you couldn't sort of relax or wind down. 
because especially during the troubles, you know, obviously there was so many officers being murdered and so many attacks, uh, doorstep attacks and things. So it was just, yeah, it was constantly, you just sort of, have, what do you call it, hypervigilant. Although at the time you didn't, again, you were aware of the possibilities of a threat, um, especially at your most vulnerable when you're home with your family or off duty. Um, but it was just something gradually, it just became the norm. You know, it's something you didn't even notice you were doing. Yeah, and, and you've talked to me before about, I mean, you talk about phantoms there and, and the sort of yeah. being on edge about even about things, the potential of danger. But you, you've talked to me yeah. before about actually being taunted about murders by members of active service units. And having yeah. that, I mean, I'll, I'll actually read what you said to me because I think it's really eloquent. You basically said, later you'd be taunted about a murder, often by members of the active service unit responsible. You just find yourself shutting down, having an incapacity to respond or acknowledge. Each time was a little death for us, a little victory for them. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. Can you talk a wee bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's several. I mean, obviously there's several maybe more times, you know, that's happened. Uh, one, one time, one early time was, uh, say, we're out on patrol following um, the next day or maybe the, that week that a colleague had been killed by a rocket um, and you'd maybe get some members of the local um, active service unit. Uh, say we'd stop them and we'd just be going through the usual um, kind of script with them. Uh, but you could see they couldn't sort of contain themselves because there were they were kind of wanting to, you know, hit back at you, you know, verbally. So, you know, they would sort of start pointing to part of the parts of Land Rover antenna. It's very, uh, very vulnerable there or something. Or there's not much armor there. And um, and then it would lead into house um, such and such as widow, um, you know, and, um, it, you know, things like, oh, he did some screaming before he he died, uh, you know, before he kicked the bucket or before he died or before he shot up or whatever, you know, and it was just a sort of constant we, they were trying to sort of, you know, as it were, stick a finger in your wound and sort of twist it around, like, or hook it and uh, you know, you could either, uh, I think you could either go f- straight from A to Z in a, you know, circumstances like that but, you know, uh, that wasn't obviously that wasn't um, going to happen. So when I say you know you kind of shut down, you did shut down. It was sort of like you know, um, emotionally clenching your teeth and just trying to drown out um, you know the the taunts with um, just sort of going over your you your form. It was called a CI one. Just going over it um, and the, noting the details and all. Um, you know. That you would have to sort of um, collect and maybe sort of sticking to asking them those specific questions and just ignoring uh, the taunts because you you would get taunts as well about you know um, you know some of them are quite blasé about you know if it was an engineer or something you know they'd be quite proud of say a device or an IED that that. Um, um, went off or or something or maybe killed a, a, a soldier, while not be, while being smart enough not to implicate themselves, uh, they would still want to get a rise out of you. Um, and even I remember there was a guy in intensive care, one of our colleagues in intensive care, and his family were waiting outside uh, intensive care, and they were um, sort of taunted and jeered at by you know some employees in the hospital. Um, itself so uh, for them you know it was an easy as I say you know it was an easy victory but uh, I think that was the only way you could deal with it and even uh, it sort of lapped over you know if you were at a scene um, and say uh, you were at the scene early on so there was only say uh, maybe a couple of Land Rovers at it um, and a couple of us and uh you were dealing with trying to deal with casualties, and then say paramedics arrived, a doctor maybe arrived, um, and then you had to get the casualties evacuated. You had to sort of seal the scene off. But in doing all this, you had to be mindful that there could be secondaries, there could be another another attack. Um, so 
you're sort of pop, say one eye is looking around for secondaries or vulnerable areas or whatever, and the other eye is sort of uh, trying to be mindful of the casualties while you're um, keeping control and stuff uh, sort of updated. So you, you're sort of, yeah, you're kind of all over the place um, in terms of that. But as the day maybe goes on, and if you don't, if you're still there after a while, say waiting on some kind of recovery of vehicles or whatever, or even, um, you know, specialists coming out like um, Soco mapping photography, uh, obviously you would get, depend, again, depending on the area, but, you know, you would get maybe people coming up to the cordons, um, or you would get, um, you know, even out in their gardens and all, and you would get maybe, uh, you would hear, you know, what they're saying, even in conversation maybe to each other. Um, and some of the stuff could be quite directed, as it were, you know, they would say it loud enough, say things loud enough that uh, you knew it was meant for us um, at the scene and, you know, things, oh, I hope he's dead or um, things like that. And I know that one of my uh, things, if I hear a brush, uh, uh, be a brush, especially along um, stone or like asphalt or whatever, it can on occasion trigger my uh, PTSD because there was a colleague um, and he'd bled out on the, the road. Um, it's just one of those times I didn't even realize. Um, I know there was parts of him left in the, the Land Rover, but I didn't really uh, realize about the blood. And it was somebody out. It just caught my eye, um, just as we were, I think it's just as the vehicle was being recovered and taken away. And we were starting to lift the cordon that um, some resident came out and started uh, brushing the blood down into the gutter. And I couldn't get in the, I froze at that. I remember freezing, um, just watching it. Um, and, I, you know, everything just kind of dissolved around me and faded away. Um, that I had to be physically grabbed and pulled into the back of uh, my Land Rover, but that sort of memory always sticks with me. That it wasn't—I don't think it—it it wasn't done maliciously, but I think it was just the casualness, the everydayness of it. You know, it was just somebody out um, cleaning the street, as it were, but it was a friend's blood um, that was being brushed down the gutter. So it was trying to reconcile that um with the everyday so that was quite tough but yeah we seem to excel at that in this country where we taunt each other i mean we had paul wilson yeah. on uh in, in one of our first interviews and he was saying about how they were singing uh, where's your daddy gone to him the, the day after the murder um and i remember after the chinook helicopter crash that with the johnny adair and his crew were singing mull of kintyre Going into the courthouse, that thing. I mean, we seem to we seem to bring out the worst in each other, and we seem to really, yeah. really revel in it. And and when it's visited back on you, it is the worst thing in the world to have. I mean, it it is, as you said, it's somebody putting their finger into the wound and just twisting, and and they really are. I mean, and and all this is building building a picture of of how your mental capacity must have been at that time, your mental health capacity, because you're constantly on the job. You've got oppression on the on the way to from work you can't switch off entirely when you're off and then things like this are happening you mean apart from the bottles of whiskey getting pulled out of filing cabinets i mean did the ruc ever address ptsd um at the very later stage i think there were attempts but um there was still i would say there was still uh, very much an attitude of just you know, kind of get on with it. It would be maybe seen as a weakness. Um, it would be seen as a weakness, say, on the part of uh, the officers on the ground who were dealing or had dealt with the incident. And it may be seen as a weakness as well by senior officers who wanted to kind of maintain, um, you know, the, be the word, like the, Yeah. I guess, no, even rather not. I, I think it would have been just because I'd say at the later stage um, and there was that attitude with just um, get on with the job and don't be seen to be, you know, emotionally affected by it. 
uh, or things that were happening um, because I think it wasn't the PTSD itself wasn't fully understood at that time and it might have been seen as uh, nonsense you know maybe like shell shock was uh, back you know sort of World War One, post-World War One, uh, seen as um, maybe somebody trying to get off out of a uh, you know, on the sector or whatever, um, or somebody who doesn't know, he doesn't like that kind of duty, you know, he's just somebody's pulling the flanker or whatever. But I think maybe the real thing was it just wasn't completely understood. Um, and that was conjoined with the, the kind of sort of the steely mental attitude uh, that was sort of subtly promoted within the RUC. Yeah, we, we had... Um, we had I, I, sorry, I was going to say, we had Leon O'Neill on the other week and she was saying the same about the reporters in the newsroom, the journalists involved. It was just expected you, yeah. you dealt with it. Man up is probably the wrong way to put it, but it's just that kind of mentality of just deal with it. I mean, that's your job. Get over it and get on with the next one. Yeah, that's it. It's kind of our um, attitude. It was part and parcel of, um, you know, the troubles and uh, the goings on at the time. Uh, yeah, because I saw um, saw a, a news reporter probably not that long before I uh, was retired, um, and uh, I remember it was the water cannon up. Um, there was an incident in North Belfast ongoing uh, with the water cannon up, um, the you know the camera trucks and everything, and uh, it was just a, a firework, but it was a quite a large firework came out of straight to our left. Um, hit the hit the road, and then ricocheted up, and she was standing beside the Land Rover bonnet, just to just across uh, from our right, and firework. I don't know. It ricocheted up from the road, and then struck that bonnet, and must have missed her by inches, literally inches. It was quite a large firework, and it, she had to duck out of the way, you know, at that time. So. Yeah, I can see that you do because they were um, a lot of reporters were, especially were uh, you know uh, riots and, and things like that, sort of in the area at the time, or even shootings. Uh, because if they were at the scene sometimes, and there was, if they were there quickly or or something, and say there was some kind of you know another shooting, or there was a, a secondary or whatever. Um, yeah, it was. Still, uh, you know, for that, for I suppose for any anyone caught up in that, it was just sort of, you know, try and deal with it yourself as best you can. It's just one of those things that happens. Um, look what's happening around us. Uh, is it any wonder? And uh, just get on with it. One of the things I'm really interested in talking about tonight, um, you know, saying to Sam before we came on, we used to look at footballers back in the 1980s and 90s. And you'd have this stereotype, you know, footballers listen to Phil Collins, you know, they don't have very many sort of interesting pursuits outside the game, apart from playing golf and that type of thing. Um, yeah. And sadly, you know, for me, when you look at the RUC in the 1980s, you've got this idea of the stiff sort of guy in the uniform with a moustache and that type of thing. Um, and it's been portrayed yeah. that way in dramas. But, you know, you, you have got some... Well, some of your musical interests and, and cultural interests sort of dovetail with my own. Um, I know you're a fan of Throbbing Gristle and you're into heavy metal oh, yeah. and you read Alistair Crowley and Anton LaVey. And I mean, that all yeah. that really informs your writing as well. So but yeah. what, what I'd like to know is what was it like being in the RUC, particularly in the 1980s, and having those sort of interests? Surely there weren't too many people you could sort of share those interests with, or, or am I wrong? No, you, I could probably count on one hand, um, and that would only be with, um, say, black metal or yeah. you know extreme metal. Even maybe I tried a few times with getting somebody interested in uh, power noise, um, but uh, yeah, was, you, you were kind of you were just it's just looked at as maybe we quirks or just the sort of eccentricity. Um, you know, yeah, the things around, you know, uh, Crowley and things like um, and Golden Dawn and uh, even shamanism uh, and also, you know, being uh, 
massive interest in heathenism, especially Nordic, um, and also Finnish. Uh, but that probably, uh, when I look at it, it's because I didn't have a specific interest in, uh, say, religion itself, where I didn't subscribe, as it were, to any particular religion, but I was interested in just the whole uh, concept of religion and what people believe and why they believe it. And I think probably the, the heathenism uh, was of interest to me because at the time I was um, very much into black metal and then how obviously it had the Nordic um, connection as well to it. Um, but yeah, it was, but at the same time, there was no kind of animosity uh, in the RUC because I was sort of in the, all these uh, kind of strange things. It was just sort of carried along as a wee bit, as I say, of, uh, like eccentricities and stuff. But uh, at the same time, I was even interested, at, um, you know, in the Masons and stuff because I knew some colleagues were in the Masons, um, although, of course, because they were so secretive, um, they didn't say it outwardly or, um, you know, explicitly, but you knew they were in it because of the cap, you know, the things they talked about and talked around and even stuff they dropped uh, verbally, you knew. Uh, the, uh, but that interested me as well in the whole sort of specifics of uh, where Masonry came from and uh, even its links as well to, you know, things like um, the old mystics um, and sort of old religions as well. So uh, I, I tried to marry that up later, that interest with the policing career. And sometimes it did sort of even um, sort of kind of uh, dissolve into the counter ideologies between loyalism and republicanism, um, especially with the mythologies. Uh, because I was um, very interested in Irish mythology, I kind of always have been, and that's probably come off the back of archaeology. Um, but I mean, and with that as well, uh, one of my favourite poets is Francis Ledwidge. And, you know, he was a great friend of the uh, the, the ones involved in the Easter Uprising, uh, but he fought, you know, against the Germans and a you know, on the side of the, the British, but uh, I think, and he was a great, he was a great admirer and a great um, sort of um, pupil, as it were, of Lord Dunsany. Uh, but, you know, uh, I think his, his poetry is fantastic. Uh, and that whole, uh, the, his life, uh, unfortunately he was killed in World War One. but just his life up to that point was fascinating. You know, the, the kind of pull and push of um, the, the the kind of rise of republicanism uh, during, say, nineteen sixteen, mid World War One, um, and him actually being, you know, um, on the side of the Allies in Flanders, whenever his, his, his friends were involved in the you know the, the whole post office, um, um, and the the uprising itself, you know. Uh, that kind of fascinated me uh, and it's all kind of those are sort of things I'm always drawn to so I mean through my career it's just been you know mythology archaeology uh, mysticism magic uh, and then sort of very much so countercultures as well uh, I've always been fascinated by countercultures um, and then the music as well I always seem to uh, from early days with uh, I guess Robin Gressel and stuff onwards one artist just bounced to another and then you know I, I was really really heavily into Coil um, yeah. as well the, you know the experimental electronic group um, even you know to partially get to know um, John Balance um, slightly and even sleazy um, and even before that um, I've done you know I'd spoken to some black metal uh, artists um, and I know I did, I did communicate with um, Farg Veganist for a while because I knew his record label Misanthropy in England and I was friendly with them but I had uh, <clears throat> had to address the letters to Farg's 
uh, mother because he was in prison at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, we just exchanged letters um, and argued about um, our different interpretations of the Nordic sagas and the Nordic mythologies. So and it's I, kind of it's kind of bizarre. And how how did that come up? Did you just write to him on a whim, or what? What way did that come about? I find that really interesting. Yeah, I think it was through um, uh, Michael Moynihan. Who, yeah. Uh, written a book, you know, the Lords of Chaos, yeah. um, kind of for a while back, um, especially with I suppose American heathenism, I'd known uh, Michael slightly, but it was just on you know correspondence, just at that level. Um, and I was reading his book, and then I was reading what uh, Viganus had written about some aspects of the sagas, and I was kind of oh, I don't really, I don't agree with that. That's not how my interpretation of it is, or my sort of uh, transliteration of it uh, would be, and of course it was in the uh, Birdsome at the time anyway uh, and similar black metal acts and then I, I knew I was getting the material from directly from misanthropy and I, I got to know some of the uh, the ones who ran the label as such um, and it, it just sort of grew from that and then next thing I found myself uh, pen on the letter because they said um just write a letter to him, and uh, there, here's his mum's address. Uh, write it to her, and she'll uh, give it to him in prison. And then he returned the letters, his letters through his mum uh, to myself. I think, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, and it brings us back to the idea of correspondence and debating ideas with people. Because back then, as you say, you wrote a letter to to put your point yeah. point of view across. Now. People would just go on the Twitter and have a go at you. Uh, and I know you've yeah. experienced that. Sam's experienced yeah. that. I've experienced it. So probably to, to sort of begin rounding things off in this in this chat. You've had a couple of negative experiences on Twitter. I think that have almost drawn you off the off the platform. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit more about that and specifically about how you, as an ex officer? have perhaps been pigeonholed in people's minds, whether it be people who assume you're a comrade or people who assume you're an enemy. Can you talk a wee bit yeah. about that on social media? Yeah, I think it's definitely one thing you have encountered, um, especially on Twitter, where, as you say, you have these um, expectations that uh, because you're in the RUC, therefore you're a collaborator, um, you know, you run loyalist murder gangs uh, or whatever, or you work with them. Um, but I kind of say even, you know, at this late period, um, after being medical, um, out of the, out of the place, um, I, st I still carried with me that need to know, um, you know, what drove each respective ideology. So I sort of wanted to, um, put myself as it were in the, in the most, I suppose, simplistic terms. Is put myself in each other's or the shoes, say, of a, a para um, active service unit volunteer. How they perceived me, uh, why they perceived me the way they did, um, and then you know doing the same with a loyalist, uh, and then to, to find somewhere in the middle um, common ground because that sort of stuck with me as well. I, I spoke about it recently in a, a podcast just stopping a guy um, just off the Falls Road and being more interested in the records he had in his bag um, than really where he was going, what he was doing or anything. I just wanted to talk about the records because of the same records I had. Um, and then I sort of I, I sort of think, well, why do you want to kill me when, you know, you like the clash? Um, you, you know, um, so I think I, I just needed to drop all those kind of stereotypes of, um, uh, I, I, I guess, and gain a better understanding. I mean, I've read, I wanted to gain a better understanding even of Bobby Sands. So I've gone over his poems over and over again to try and find some essence of him in it, as it were. Um, because I'm sort of, I, I don't, want to be blinkered uh, and closed-minded um, in regards right? I, I was in the RUC so therefore I hate every Republican um, and every Republican hates me um, 
you know, with loyalists, it's kind of more of a difficult uh, relationship, um, especially even, uh, with unionists, because I know, you know, some of my ex- ex-colleagues actually, um, I think some of them are even band members now. I know one went off um, and he's now in a band. Um, so it's more maybe more of a difficult relationship um, in that respect for me to, to kind of uh, perceive. But it was just, yeah, uh, I guess um, that was why maybe some of the, I, I got a wee, um, some personal attacks, you know, even on the, the wee direct message, because I'm really bad at um, replying to direct messages, but these come in like in caps and capital letters and everything. And they were from people that I've actually served with and kind of knew from way back when. Um, and I think it was a case they thought, why well, shouldn't be, I shouldn't even be considering um, uh, you know the IRA's position or Republicanism's position, and it was a case of um, the RUC was right, uh, Republicans were wrong, and that's it. There's no, you know, there's no grey. It's just, that's black and white. That's it. And I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, we certainly on weren't on the side of angels because I work with um, quite a few, uh, you know, <laughs> bad eggs, as it were. Um, uh, you know, although I wouldn't want to go in, you know, into too much depth about that, but um, at the same time, that's how I feel, you know, uh, there's just, you know, everything's all, it's not as black and white as, and as simplistically drawn uh, as that. Um, and it, I, I think that's why uh, there's some quite nasty stuff. Sometimes I still get it. Sometimes, you know, if I maybe say something, maybe uh, I, would, I would get some people flying into the timeline and telling me off and, and then disappearing again. But uh, a lot of times I just kind of ignore that because, uh, as I say, the, the whole concept, even with the podcast, uh, was it was therapeutic. Um, I think the early stages of it was, was just to try and define what it was I wanted to say. Um, so it, I sort of built that through uh, my fiction uh, to kind of explain my perception of things that it put into fiction to try and draw it out a bit better. Um, and then I sort of recounted incidents that had happened um, from the perspective of, uh, say, either, you know, the para or the police or you know, part of even um, innocent parties involved. Uh, and it was to try and gauge um, what exactly, you know, was the thought process on each side. And I think probably it's, it's nudged a wee bit as well by my big interest in um, Irish mythology um, and the whole archaeology on the islands um, as well that it, it sort of because there is that um, sort of pseudo-historical link um, and romanticism attached to republicanism it maybe sort of overlaps my interest as well um, but very much. I think I've always been of a mind to see things from the other person's perspective, even if that, you know, maybe not so much the extreme if that other person has a gun in my face. But the, that fascinated me as well was sometimes, I mean, I remember in the Falls Road talking to a, a member of Para and I was chatting away to him for ages and I was surprised he stayed on to chat. But we were just talking about um, mundane things and it was good natured. And this was during the trouble. This was before the first ceasefire. Um, but there was no, like, oh, you're trying to recruit me or whatever. It was just a, you know, like a friendly talk. Um, although there probably was, I can't really remember, maybe unconsciously, we were both kind of keeping uh, sort of a, a distance, as it were, um, you know, in the, in the context of the conversation. And... Um, but it was just, you know, and then when you leave that, um, you know, you've spoken to somebody as a human um, on the same level as yourself. But at the same time, you know their background and you know that you could be either be walking into one of their I, um, IEDs or some kind of setup that they engineered, as it were. Um, but at the same time, I think rather than putting me off, those kind of engagements... It, it sort of it, it fueled them more, and it, it sort of fueled more my want to need or need to know and wanting to explore 
those sort of counter narratives um, and the ide- ideologies on both sides. And then as well as that, um, I'm also sort of cognizant that when you have your uniform on it, it kind of dehumanizes you uh, slightly because ironically, especially with the, the peak caps for us and in the RUC, you would um, pull it down. You'd pull the peak down sometimes right to the tip of your nose to try and obscure as much as your face as possible. You know, so you would be recognized or if there was somebody at the time, you know, like a camera or one of the early video cameras um, photographing you. Uh, not so much to kind of get you to say something because obviously there wasn't YouTube at that stage or social media, um, but just for targeting purposes. So you're kind of obscuring yourself. You're dehumanizing yourself while the uniform's also dehumanizing you. So I was always thinking, well, how do they perceive me when all they can see is like a, a harp and a crown and a whole kind of green capped stereotype talking to them? Who's also, you know, wearing a sidearm um, and has uh, soldiers around him as well. So, you know, all these things were sort of ticking over in my head. Um, and uh, as I say, that's what I kind of wanted to explore through the podcast. And sometimes when I tweet stuff, um, Again, it's seeing somebody on an equal footing as myself. I don't like to be judgmental. And I think it's kind of, for me anyway, personally, uh, it's sort of a lazy attitude to say, we were right, you're wrong, at that end of story. You know, especially in terms of um, Northern Ireland and the whole, the, the troubles itself, and even the whole recent history of Ireland. It's far, far more complex and we're far, far more interrelated, um, you know, than we think. And maybe this kind of constant sticking at these sort of lines um, and these divisions, it's sort of, you know, it's salt in the wounds. It's not really healing, as it were. There has to come a time where somebody has to make the first step towards somebody else. Um and try and you know have some kind of dialogue and understand that other person's perspective, you know, and vice versa, rather than everybody re- retreating behind um, preconceived um, ideals that you know somebody could be one hundred percent right while that other person um, was completely the wrong, you know, total and totality uh, with no room in between for any uh, movement whatsoever. Well, that, that's certainly, I mean, that's that's a good way to round this conversation off because what me and Sam are trying to do with shrapnel is get beyond the stereotypes and, and the sort of binary understandings of, of, of what, what we've experienced here. And it's yeah. trying to sort of look at people and say, well, you're more than just a uniform or you're more than just a ideology you're a human being with all the different worries and struggles that everybody else has. So I think the more we have these sort of conversations, the more potential there is perhaps for mutual understanding and healing, hopefully in the future, not to sound too sort of um, idealistic, but I think it's the only way forward is to sort of expose yourself to different ideas and different um, understandings. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with that. You know, I say that, you know, everybody exposed themselves coming out from behind the ramparts um, and just, you know, face to face, as it were, uh, and trying to understand one another, you know, without this constant need to uh, withdraw to the past, as it were, and kind of remain in the past because it's, it's safe, it's a status quo. Yeah, I think there has to be some kind of hope, especially for um, uh, kids and children now. Who have no real interest in, um, you know, the divisions of the the past, you know, and even the, the politics of division, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think Gareth, right, that's the, the best place to leave it because that's that's the message we we want to put out there that Fifty Shades of Grey, yeah, maybe it it is that way. It's just we we cover an entire spectrum from left to right. Um, listen, Ed, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you tonight. Uh, and they get a perspective that nope. certainly don't hear that often, unfortunately. Yeah, thank you so much, Ed. I really appreciate no, it. Yeah, I've really appreciated the opportunity. Yeah, thanks very much. 
and we'll we might give you a call. Yeah, another call yeah. follow up at some point. Yeah, certainly. Do do, do a yeah, black metal yeah. special. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm watching my hair that night. You two can talk all you want about that stuff. I'll leave it to you. Um, but but, I mean, but certainly, if you need the favour returned as well, if you need if you need a guest for the, the the your own podcast, we'll be more than happy to come on as well. Um, Absolutely. You can ask yeah. us all the questions That's you great. want. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'll be saying no comment to every question you ask me, but that's just, of course. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> give give, give us a solicitor. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah well, thank you very much, um, and we'll we'll speak to you soon. Yeah.